Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey everybody, welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Nathan James Thomas. And before we get to Nathan, here's a few announcements. Our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com and there you'll find photos of our guests, some stories that some of the guests have written, some stories that I've written. There's links to their social media. There's links to our social media. And by that, I mean Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on X. Uh, We have a Facebook page, if you can follow us there. We have a YouTube channel, if you can subscribe there, I'd appreciate that as well. We have links on our site to Apple Podcasts. Uh, There's a link to Stitcher Radio, which is now no more, which I have to take down. And any help uh, on WordPress that anybody out there could give me, I would appreciate it. But let's be honest, most of you listen on some kind of streaming service. And whether it's Apple, whether it's iHeartRadio, whether it's Spotify... Either way, give us a good rating, please, because that helps more people find the show by boosting our presence, and that's a cool thing for you to do, and I'd appreciate that. If you think you'd be right for the show, or you know somebody who might be right for the show as a guest, or you want to write me and ask travel questions, or maybe just tell me cool things and how awesome I am, you can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. Okay, let's talk about Nathan James Thomas. I was contacted by his people, his publicist, because he has a book out. I don't mind giving some uh, some love to somebody with something to promote if it's something that we can uh, relate to, and this is definitely that. It's called Untethered, Living the Digital Nomad Life in an Uncertain World. I talk to a lot of expats and a lot of digital nomads here on Travel Tales because it's uh, it's you can't get away from it. Let's be honest. It's a big thing now. People are more mobile than ever. More and more people realize, especially helped during the pandemic, that, wait a minute, if I can work from home, I can work from a home anywhere in the world. So that's what's happening. But there are pluses and minuses to the digital nomad life. And that's what Nathan's book tends to focus on, not just the upside of it, but also the downside and the pitfalls that can happen to people who try to live this kind of life. Untethered, it says right there in the title. You're not tethered to one place. For some people, that's very freeing. Other people, that's very scary. And they don't realize it until they leave. And maybe not scary, but maybe just uncomfortable. Maybe you like having a home base. Maybe you like having your family and friends around that you've known for a long time. Or maybe you just get tired of moving all the time. That can be exhausting. But whatever it is, Nathan covers it in his book. We have a link to it at TravelTalesPodcast.com next to this story of where you can buy the book on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. You can follow Nathan on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Intrepid Times. So if you want to follow him at any of those platforms, go for it. He's originally from New Zealand, moved around a bit, lived in the UK, and now makes his home in Poznan, Poland. I have not been to Poznan. He talks it up and sounds really, uh, really cool. I wouldn't mind checking it out one day. So that's where he's talking to me from, from Poznan, Poland, where he lives with his wife. And as you can imagine, he can give great insight on living on the road, basically. 
So it was a pleasure to meet him, and I hope you enjoy our chat. Here's my talk with Nathan James Thomas. Do you prefer Nathan or Nate? Nathan. Nathan. Okay. I have a nephew, Nathan. He's a genius. So that you're off to a good start here. <laughs> That's good. He's representing the name well. <laughs> so it's uh, 8 o'clock here. It's about, what, 9 p.m. there in uh, Poland? 5 p.m. Very. I have the advantage. Okay, good. much more Super. comfortable for me. 5 o'clock on a Friday. So you should. I hope you have a cocktail with you. I have a coffee, um, oh. which is... Unusually restrained. I did think about a beer, but I thought, no, no, I'm going to present a professional face. So, okay. What what part of uh, Poland are you in? So I'm in Poznan, which is West Poland. It's about halfway between Warsaw and Berlin, slightly closer to Berlin, actually. Okay. I've never been. I've only been to Krakow, which was Krakow lovely. Is go- Krakow's gorgeous. Everybody loves Krakow. I was there not long ago, actually. Um, Poznan's a university town. It's very pretty. It's known for the goats that pop out of the town hall at midday. But right now, for the last couple of years, actually, it's been undergoing absolutely horrific construction. The entire city center is just a mud bath. So hopefully that will be over soon. Right. Uh, So how long have you been there? So this time around, I've been here for about a year on and off. So my wife and I rented this. We'd been doing the like fully committed digital nomad thing for a few years, all our worldly possessions in suitcases. And that became a bit too much of a psychological burden. Um, <laughs> one of the two of us, I won't say which one, had far too many shoes um, to fit yeah. in a suitcase and acquiring things. So we rented an apartment a little bit over a year ago in Poznan. Um and have used this as a base since. And it's been a really great place to be uh, anchored down. Well, since you mentioned the uh, digital nomad life, let's uh, get right to the name of the book and we can get the plugs out of the way nice and early. Um, tell me about Untethered and uh, the title and uh, the inspiration for this book and what it's about. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to to get the plug wrapped up and <laughs> provide a bit of context. So. I've been doing the quote-unquote digital nomad thing for, for about 10 years. And for me, I never woke up one morning and said, I'm going to become a digital nomad. I assume the term existed 10 years ago. I, I wasn't aware of it. I just loved traveling. That was what I knew I not only wanted to do, but needed to do. That was how my life was going to be. Um, and I had to, of course, pay for the plane tickets and the hotels and the meals. And I needed to figure out a way to do that whilst being on the road. The most effective way I found to do that was to work remotely as a freelance copywriter. And I built up a business based on doing that. And after the pandemic, when remote work became more accessible to a lot of people, I found a lot of people were writing to me because they knew that this was the kind of lifestyle that I lived saying, hey, what is your advice on where I should go? I've got three months remote work, or should I go for this? Or how can I convince my boss to let me work remotely? Or how did you start a freelance business? Because people saw this, they thought it was accessible to them, they wanted to give it a go. So I'm a writer, writing is what I do. I put the answers uh, in a book. I also interviewed a bunch of other quote-unquote nomads who have very different backgrounds than mine um, and talked about how they did it too. And we, we wanted to show the good sides of the lifestyle, obviously, but also the the bad sides, the negatives, to give an honest picture. So read the book. If you want to do this, you'll know how, and you'll also know whether you actually do want it or not. <laughs> so how did you uh, – did you meet your wife on the road, or was she like someone who was – you had to be – you had to drag her into this lifestyle? 
It's a bit of both. So we <laughs> met, um, we met actually here in Poznan. I was p- traveling here um, many years ago, and we we're friends for many years. This is a place I've been coming back to because there's a great sort of expat international community here. I have many local friends. So we met here. We were friends for many years, and then when we became a little more than friends about five or six years ago. Um, we made the decision she had a work opportunity in Madrid and we kind of took the plunge and went there. It was meant to just be three months. Um, we ended up spending there together the better part of a year um, and would travel together. I'd be working remotely doing my thing. She would have more conventional office jobs in offices back when that's when where office jobs were. So we went through a few different countries. Um, we were in Spain. We were in Hungary for about a year. Um, and then I kind of helped her transition to a fully remote situation too and then we're kind of off and running we actually left our gave up our last permanent apartment right before the pandemic began and ended up seeing out the first sort of lockdown in albania quite accidentally which in retrospect was quite an experience it was um quite scary at the time but looking back it was an amazing opportunity to to be there i've talked to a number of people who've lived overseas during pandemic and and especially you know in places that are really um touristy like bali and stuff like that you know they uh they said they'll never get another opportunity to to see bali with no tourists uh so (laughs) they really didn't as as difficult as it was at the time they didn't realize what an opportunity it was did you see the the lockdown as that and did you how long did you stay in albania yeah, I don't know if I sorted it that as the time, but certainly in retrospect. So we arrived in the coastal town of Saranda uh, in early March, might have been late February, late February or early March 2020. Um, and we left in late July. So we were there for some months. So we don't intended to stay for a couple of weeks. Um, and I remember Saranda, I've not been back since, as this quite strange, mysterious, very Balkan town quite empty a clique of completely insane expats who i became great friends with and locals who were who are a bit friendly but also also a bit strange and it was just all just kind of weird in the way that you love when you're traveling very kind of odd mystical outlier place but last year a good friend of mine from poznan went there and he said it was just a club town full of (laughs) british tourists and just absolutely raging so nothing like the place that i remember Oh, another beach town you guys have ruined. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> <laughs> Taking over every beach in Spain wasn't enough for you. You had to, you Gosh, had yeah, to move on to Albania for uh, stag and hen parties. We'll be coming for <laughs> LA one day. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. The, um, well, I mean, did you think that this was a temporary thing when you started traveling you know, as a, as a living and being an expat, I mean, did you think, well, I'll do this till I'm, you know, 30, or I don't even know how, you, know, you look pretty young, but I don't know, I'll do this for five years, I'll do this for whatever. Did you think it would still be going on now? Um, exceeded 30, uh, tragically, <laughs> and still still going, although I'm much more settled than I, than I used to be, and having a permanent home base has become increasingly important. Being married has kind of changed priorities a little bit too, but... I never considered it a time restrained thing. I mean, the way I kind of narrated it was that for for most people, for most of my friends, they have their normal lives at home and then travel is a is a break from life and then they return to it. And for me it was kind of all cooked up together. Still is for the most part cooked up together in a in a soup. It's all the same thing. 
Do you still do the... Uh, is writing basically how you make your living? Is it mostly for your own sites, or do you still freelance and, and do copywriting? Yeah, I don't freelance in the sense of a gig here and a gig there. I, I have a uh, small number of companies that I've worked for for many years and have a close relationship with. And normally that began as a copywriter, whether it was articles, whether it was more conventional marketing type work, emails, websites. But now I tend to become a bit more influential in them just because I've known them for longer and understand their business. So I'll partner with them on this is what you want to do. How are we going to make people care about it and work to develop the, the messaging is the corporate word around how to do that. But I also have my own travel writing platform, Intrepid Times, um, which is a labor of love. I run that with my co-editor, Jennifer Roberts. It's not uh, particularly lucrative, um, though we're proud <laughs> that we do pay all of the writers that write for us. Um, and the community has been really growing there, which is great to see. So you've mentioned most of the, uh, a few of the places you've lived, and they've all been in Europe. I mean, have you been say, to Asia? Have, have you taken time and lived there or Africa or any other uh, continents? For sure. Um, Asia was the first place I really seriously traveled in. Well, I mean, my first serious, because I, I know I sound British. My parents are British. I have a British passport, but I actually grew up in New Zealand. Um, managed to not pick up the accent. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. Yeah, no, I don't. You fooled me. <laughs> yeah, I know. People don't believe me. I've had to actually show my New Zealand driver's <laughs> license to people to, to convince them. But so my first serious trip, I happened to be 17 when I finished high school, just because that's where my birthday was. And my first serious trip, my mum wouldn't let me go uh, to Vietnam, which is where I wanted to go. So I went through Australia on the Greyhound buses. I know in the States you have the Greyhound bus network. Either that yeah. in, in that was Australia my first or, solo or trip. In no, in Australia. No, you yeah. don't want to take a Greyhound here. In, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've done it, done it once or twice in the US. <laughs> oh, okay. Would you do it again? <laughs> Maybe I'm a bit old now. But. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> No, they were much nicer went, in uh, Australia. They were. I went from New York to Nashville on the Greyhounds about two years ago. That was okay. That was a lot of fun. But in Australia, <laughs> it was like as you'll remember these like twenty odd hour journeys, yeah. going at one hundred and thirty, and you'll hear the kind of crash every couple of hours when a kangaroo has an un- abrupt encounter <laughs> with the bull bars, and you end up in these nowhere towns, hotter than hell, and just. <laughs> It was really like, you know, I'd sold it to my mom as a safe option. It's just Australia, just next door. But it was some of the most extreme travel I've ever had. Um, And then after that, you asked about Asia. After that, I moved to China for, ended up there two years aggregate. I had some breaks, but mostly to begin with in Chengdu, uh, in Sichuan, and then for the better part of a year in Shanghai. Okay. Did Now, to get a visa to stay in those places, uh, not always easy, but were you doing the typical thing of like te- teaching English? And uh, was that a way to stay? Yeah, a lot of friends did that. So I did it kind of the other way around. So I was at first, um, although I'd graduated from my university in New Zealand, my first experience there was as a student, a uh, student of Mandarin language, and not a very oh, good student. Good for you. Uh, at, um, at Sichuan Normal University, Sichuan Teaching University, which is in Chengdu. So I was there for a semester and with the student visa they got gave me was able to spend a bit more time traveling around China and then 
When I was in Shanghai, I had a deal with another school, but this was a foreign-owned school. Uh, unfortunately, it's closed, I believe, after the pandemic. But it was a wonderful project uh, called Hutong School, and through them, I was able to get a visa. I had to do quite frequent visa runs to Hong Kong.、Um, uh, I remember that, and was loved spending time in Hong Kong. A lot of time waiting in queues and dusty passport <laughs> offices there to get the mainland visa. But yeah, there there are always ways to to figure it out. Well, China, I, I mean, certainly different than. You traveling around Europe,、um, you do stand out a bit more, and you do feel more like a fish out of water. And just the language alone, but、um, the bureaucracy and everything else. What was your biggest、um, culture shock moment living in China? Were you ever、uh, scared for anything, or were you ever worried about, you know, I've made a terrible mistake here and I'm in trouble, or anything like that? Yeah, it was. China was a very different place even ten years ago than it is now. I mean, it, it evolves so so unbelievably quickly. But I remember even Chengdu, which is a big, rich, like developed city, even there as a as a white person with blonde hair, I was <laughs> considered a bit of a freakazoid. And people would take their phones out and take photos of me as I walked down the street, or I'd be sitting outside <laughs> in a bar or cafe, and they would strafe by me. But What I used to do, I showed up not knowing a lick of the language,、um, and so I'd go to these little noodle houses around the corner from my university. Of course, there would be a menu on the wall, only in Chinese characters.、I、wouldn't be able to read a clue, and I'd point to something randomly. And as they were cooking it, I'd take out my dictionary app on my phone and try and translate the characters. And you know, one day I've accidentally ordered pig's liver. Not so good, but <laughs> eventually I'd learned that this is noodle, so、okay, I'm going to be safe. And this is cow, and this you, you, you kind of. Piece piece by piece, it was such an amazing moment to have just the time to just do that and only that. How did your stomach do over there? A lot of people get sick. Yeah, I had some bad days, that's for sure.、Um, but I lost a lot of weight, which was great. Could probably do that again. <laughs> <laughs> the Chinese diet, the food poisoning diet. That's great. The food is great, wonderful for you, for the for the weight loss. Exactly. <laughs> did you ever try the、uh, the insects? Oh yeah, I was in. I went back to China、uh, last time I was there was 2018,、um, and I went back with a good friend, a journalist from New Zealand. He's actually working in Hawaii at the moment, and we went to Kunming, which is the capital of Yunnan Province. And I went. I think he was、um, having a nap one afternoon. I went around the corner from our hostel to a little, just kind of almost like a sports bar, just like a hole in the wall cafe with a TV on on the wall, and ordered a beer and a plate of I think they're woodworms, and just ate them with chopsticks, very crunchy. They were actually quite nice. <laughs> Okay, yeah, I've seen、uh, everything on a stick in a market in、yes. Asia, you know. but I still have not been to mainland China, so it's it's high on my list.、Um, it's amazing. I I can't. I'd love to go back. I don't quite. I know they've just reopened for tourism.、Um, I can imagine it being quite different from the place that I remembered, even though it's only been a few years. Have you kept up your Mandarin? Not really.、Uh, I, I have been. I've been trying to learn Polish, which I'm doing much worse at. One one reason is that it's just grammatically a much more complex language than than Mandarin is, and the other is that I, among my many good Polish friends, they all would much rather be speaking English, and they're so much、right. better at speaking English than I am will ever be at speaking Polish. I know that's a pretty lame excuse. Like I'm still I'm still trying. I remember being in、um, in Vietnam. I was in Hanoi and walking through a park and. Uh, like you said, it was just it became this attraction that、uh, somebody has to take a photo with me, and、uh, I said okay, and then everybody else saw that that I was okay with it, and they came out of the woodwork and all of a sudden wanted a photo with this 
you know, this white guy walking through. I, I always wondered, I always wondered what they're going to do with the photo. Just say, here's a guy I just met, or they just lie and say, this is my good friend from America. Oh, you're I don't famous on their, yeah. if, it's, if it's China, you're, you're famous on their WeChat, the, that's oh, okay. the, the everything app. You're going to be in all their, the equivalent of all their Instagram <laughs> stories and, and all of that. It's my good friend, Mike from America. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so the, you, so you went through China and then when did you get to Europe and, and did you ever spend much time in the UK or did you, you know, bypass I've that altogether? A, yeah. Um, so the UK is, so my, my parents moved, migrated from the UK to New Zealand just about a, not long before I was born. So all of my family, with the exception of my parents and my sister, uh, are in the UK. So, okay. um, I go there, I go there often. I have my mom's from London. My dad's from Southwest Devon. Um, and I had my grandfather, uh, until he passed a few years ago, he lived in Scotland. So I would travel through it quite a bit. Um, I still go back. Um, yeah, I, but Europe is a place that I've always felt very at home. I traveled in Poland many times before I kind of developed a community here and, and indeed now have a, have a wife from here, but I have family history from Poland. My, great grandmother on my mum's side who I knew she lived quite old so I have childhood memories of her was born in Poland um before the first world war technically it wasn't Poland then it it was culturally and but just not legally Poland was wiped off the map for a long time until 1918 so although her passport said Russia she was Polish Jewish and much of my almost all my mum's family is from there so I've made a few just trips looking up the family history um, from the places that they're in, just enjoying being in the country, always felt some connection here. So it's a place that pulled me back. It's it's very affordable. So if you're doing the digital nomad thing and working online, especially if you're earning in dollars or pounds and spending in Saudi, the local currency, it's not as crazy as it was when I first came here about seven or eight years ago. You're, it was ridiculous. Like, but now it's it's still advantageous. Um, now a lot of expats are here for partially for that reason. Right? Do you have the? Um, do you have two passport? Do you did you get a UK passport as well? I did, and that was wonderful um, before Brexit. That's what I was going to ask you how Brexit yeah. affected you, and that what yeah, a, it was very what a pain in the ass that a, became. What a pain! It was such a pain. <laughs> yeah, because it was for UK people who were like anchored and living in a British in a in a European country, like, be it Poland or Spain or wherever. There was a fairly straightforward transition process, um, but I wasn't living anywhere. I was traveling around. Sometimes I was in the EU. Sometimes I was out of the EU. I was in Albania or Georgia for a long time. So. There was about a year where I was spending a lot of time at immigration offices and was always a bit nervous when passing border control. But when the moment I actually became married to a Polish citizen, this is, of course, not why I became married, but it was a nice bonus. um, Then they just moved the paperwork for me right away. The EU is very serious about not separating families. So once that was done, it it stopped being a problem. Right. My my grandmother's family is from Russian, Polish. Uh, there you go. Well, well, Poland, and then my grandfather was from the Ukraine, which again, it was all considered Russia at the time of the turn of the century when they exactly. and they escaped, you know, with uh, millions of other Jews. And uh, but I know my, yeah, I know my grandfather's family was from Odessa, which I still never been, but I've uh, I never found out what part of Poland my my grandmother's family was from, but I'd like to. And uh, like I said I've been to Krakow, and that was it. And I always compare Krakow to, um, it's similar to Prague. Uh, I thought just as beautiful and half the price. That's how I always used to sell it. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so, 100% you, agree. Right? Okay. Yeah. And I've never been to Warsaw, but I heard it's, 
it's bigger, but it's because it was leveled during the war. There's not that intrinsic beauty that you know that old world charm that is there. Is that am I right? I or a, yeah, I did the Lonely Planet. Um, Gourmet Trails piece on Warsaw uh, for this year's book. And I, my opening sentence was something like, uh, Warsaw is often overlooked in favor of its better looking cousin, Krakow, which is, which is true. <laughs> I mean, Krakow is just much prettier. Um, but I've come to love Warsaw. I mean, I first I hated it. I had to go there all the time because it's where all the international flights to places I was going to were from. But over time, I, I came to really appreciate it. Like, below the surface, there is great, great bars, restaurants, culture. The fact that they re- the city was absolutely raised to the ground in 1944 after the Warsaw Uprising. So the, the Poles rose up against the Nazis. The Soviet army watched the Poles and the Nazis killing each other and then drove in and just destroyed the rest. And the city was nothing. And the Poles, after the war, rebuilt it. Um, they looked at old architecture textbooks or old photos, and they got together. They bought bricks from all over the country, and they're, we're going to rebuild our capital city. It's really moving. Um, so, like, I find Warsaw, like, a pretty cool place. I don't think I'd like to live there, but it's <laughs> definitely, I would recommend people, like, if you're going to go into Poland and you have time, like, don't, don't overlook Warsaw. Okay. I've only heard of Poznan because of the, the football club. I do follow uh, European football, or mostly English, but uh, I have Lech Poznan is the team there, right? Oh, yeah, they're huge. You can tell whenever they're playing in the city because the city just becomes demented. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I their, fans, their fans are something else. They're, they're enthusiastic. Sure. Uh, well, let's get back to being um, a digital nomad, and that's a term that you know, has been, got very popular in the last 10 years. And especially during COVID, a lot of people just like, forget it. I'm not going to wait anymore. I'm gone. So um, I know you probably cover this in the book, and I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing yet. But thank you for sending me a copy. I will. Um, what is the biggest mistake people make when they decide, this is my lifestyle. I'm going to be a digital nomad. And I've heard from other people that I've talked to that they leave without a real plan. You know, like they're not making money and they, they always suggest, you know what, make sure your business, you're making money online first before you leave. Don't just leave and try, <laughs> and try to make money. How do you, what is the big mistake people make? Or did yeah, they pick I, the I wrong think, country or something? To some extent, I'd, I'd agree with that. Like you probably want to be in a situation where you have your business running or some freelance clients before you, that you can take with you. So it's much easier to get a remote job. Uh, the easiest remote job is the job you already have, you know, assuming that it's an office job and something that you can do. And I suggest in the, in the book that folks, instead of telling their employer, right, I'm off to be a digital nomad now, like see you on zoom. Um, <laughs> say, can I spend two weeks working remotely, you know, next month? And then if that's successful and you, you kind of make the case that you can deliver value, hit your deadlines, be at your meetings, no one notices, you know, there's no impact to the company's bottom line or your productivity, then, you know, layer it, layer it more and more from then. So the plan aspect is, is definitely important. I mean, I also tell people that, well, you, you asked me before whether I, you know, set a time limit on my own travels. I, I didn't. Um, but people don't have to, you know, it doesn't have to be a whole lifestyle. It can be something that you just do for three months and, you know, take it from there. Right. And that's a, another thing that uh, I've heard that people will, they'll, they'll go choose to live in a, in a country or something that quite often, maybe they've never even visited. Um, 
and maybe take a, a month run <laughs> there. You know, was, they didn't even know if they'd like it or not, uh, or find the right region or whatever it is, and then they give up too quickly. Um, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. And so that's the, the kind of the balance between planning and not planning. So you can plan too much because there's an extent to which you really have to be somewhere to know whether you like it, to know what parts of the city you gel with, to know what the cost of living really is when you're at the supermarket, when you're eating out, to know what kind of communities there, to know how people treat you, like whether you can make friends there. So for example, I've lived in both Hungary and Poland. And whilst I had a great time in both of those places, it's really only been in Poland that I found it easy to make local friends. I, I made one or two Hungarian friends, really cool people, but in Poland, I found it so much easier. I think that probably speaks more to my personality than the characteristics of either of those two countries. So where are you going to feel at home or sufficiently at home, that balance of being comfortable enough to stay some serious time there, but excited enough that it feels like you're traveling? Is there a country you got to that immediately you felt, well, mm, this was probably a mistake. And then you kind of warmed up to it. Or was, and it was the reverse too. It was the one you were really excited about and then went, God, this didn't really gel like I wanted it to. Yeah, great, great questions. I, I think Georgia was somewhere that kind of had both of those experiences. So when I first went to Georgia, obviously the, the country, I mean, not the, not the state. Yeah, um, you know, we're going to Atlanta. A, I get it. Yeah, it was always a pain whenever I, whenever I was in Georgia. And I was trying to find out, like, because I was there during one of the COVID lockdowns. And I was trying to find out, like, Georgia COVID stats. And it would give me the wrong, the wrong right. Georgia. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, so I felt I first traveled through Georgia with a group of friends um, in 2017. Um, we just spent a few days there. And I absolutely loved it. I was so excited to return um and then but then having returned i took my wife here um it was actually around the brexit time when i had to leave europe um but there was just no possibility of going back to new zealand or even asia with all the covid stuff so where is close to europe but not in the eu georgia was it that would let us in uh, and georgia was a good option um so we were in spain before we moved that from there to georgia and my first impression was actually like, oh, I love this place to travel through. But having lived here, we were in this district called Subatalo, which is an area of big highways and high rise buildings. And it felt just quite claustrophobic because you couldn't walk anywhere without being cars zooming by. And it was all concrete. We were on the 18th floor, but we'd still have beggars knocking on our door. Um, oh, so, but we, we moved apartments. We moved to a completely different part of the city, uh, an old Armenian neighborhood actually called Avlabari, which was much quieter, much more real. Um, and immediately, like, it was like, okay, no, we're good. Like, so it was not the wrong country, but it was the wrong part of it. What do you look for when you go to a city? I mean, more of a city person uh, I mean, in terms of opportunity and, uh, you know, options and maybe meeting people, it's better to go to a, a city. You know, small towns can be tough. Um, but what do you look for in a neighborhood, whatever country you're in? Do you get, is it the vibe or is it like the, the traffic or the amount of expats around? What's, what, what works for you? You've probably figured it out by now. <laughs> yeah, what, what works for me is a city, but not the main city. Like, I think Poznan is a great example of the kind of place that I really like. So it's, I think it's Poland's fifth biggest city thereabout. So it has enough heft and character that it's got a good airport. It's convenient. There's stuff going on. There's concerts. There's good restaurants. Um, but it's not as expensive as the major cities. Most people overlook it. So 
it's somewhere new. If friends visit me here, they wouldn't have otherwise seen the place. Um, there is a kind of international community, but it's not overwhelming. Like for most of the time when you go out, when you're walking on the street, like in Krakow, I don't know if you, if it's your experience, but if you're in Krakow, you're mostly going to hear English, especially if you're in the center. Whereas if you go out here, you're, you're mostly going to hear Polish or Ukrainian nowadays, of course, because uh, we have a number oh, of, really? um, that's where they all uh, went. You, well, uh, to, to Poland, I mean, the populations of Warsaw and Krakow grew by about 30% in a month. Like, wow. Poznan, not wow. quite as much. But it's, I mean, people are very welcoming here. The, the vibes are very positive. But yeah, it was a, it was a huge change. Oh, sure. Um, is there a big university there? Because I find those yeah. helped. Yeah, those help. You know, they, they add a little diversity and a little energy to a place, you know? Yeah, I agree. So Poznan has the Adam Miskiewicz University. Um, we have a number of international students. When I was younger, um, when I was first here, uh, 2015 or so, the first time I spent any serious time here, a lot of my friends were international students. So probably a bit old to be hanging out with students now, but it, <laughs> uh, it does change the character of a place for the better, for sure. When you when people come to you and ask you about the digital nomad lifestyle, is there a vibe or, or some kind of feeling you get from them? And can you look at them and just go... I don't think it's going to work for this person or do you just know right away or did they just got some kind of thing about them? And they're like, yes, that person will be fine. And then do you ever dissuade anybody from going, Ugh, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> Great question. So one of the reasons why I wanted to interview people from different backgrounds for my book was because I didn't want to paint the idea that to be a digital nomad, you have to be like a, a young kind of techie person who works online. Unfortunately, I kind of fit the stereotype a little bit too much. So I kind of cast in it wide. I opened, asked the people in my Intrepid Times community and just, are you a digital nomad? Do you know any? Uh, here's a interview. Um, and there are people all ages, demographics, different kinds of work. Um, so I don't necessarily think there's a certain type of person in terms of anything on paper that would tell me that this is not for you. But in terms of personality, you have to be very adaptable and you have to be know that you can plan. Planning helps, but you also have to know that things are probably not going to go according to that plan. And if you're a control freak who likes to know what next week will bring, this is not for you, but you're probably not going to be attracted to this anyway if you're that kind of person. What is the main reason people give up on it, you think? Is it loneliness or is it uh, money issues or a combination of everything? You know, I've asked people this question a lot. Um, it's not necessarily really either of those things. Um, you're very seldom lonely, even if you travel alone. It's so easy to meet people when, when traveling. And the money issue, a, a lot of like a lot of parts of the world are much cheaper than the, the States or New Zealand or, sure, or yeah. the UK or Australia. So that can be quite advantageous. Um, so the, the, there is burnout, that burnout of not having a home. Of I've definitely experienced this, of that not knowing what country you're going to be in in two weeks, that can be exhilarating if you're in the right state of mind, or it can be exhausting. And there's a huge, like, mental overhead, like, burden of like cognitive load that is required to figure this all out, right? When's our visa going to run out here? Um, what is our time zone in relation to that time zone? How Where are we staying? Oh, no, the Airbnb canceled on us. Can we afford to go there? And how are we going to pack this luggage? Okay, but we're going to put this one in our hands and it can luggage, not carry on. And there's all that stuff that is fine. It's all part of the experience if you're going on vacation. But if you're doing that constantly, it can really be quite exhausting. And then there's that sort of unanchored feeling that you don't really have anywhere to fully and properly just, just recharge, just completely feel at home because 
you never are. And many digital nomads like me don't really have a quote unquote, like a family home or something that we grew up in because, you know, parents have moved or whatever to, to return to. So that is not like there's an easy place to go. So, um, having the way I'm kind of doing it now that I have a stable apartment that I'm often go like two or three months without seeing. Um, but at least I know it's here and my stuff's here that has made a huge difference. Yeah, I talked to uh, uh, Man Calamir, who who has been living in Bali, but his first big trip, it was a year of straight travel, you know, 30 countries. And he said he never got tired of seeing new things. But what does drain you, and I've had this on like three-month trips, is just the constant planning and the logistics. Uh, you know, you love seeing new places, but then you you realize that, oh, my God, every week, I'm, I got to figure out flights. I got to figure out trains. I got to figure out where to stay. That, you know, the packing and the unpacking, <laughs> just getting there. It's exhausting. Like you said, it is yeah. tiring. And that, that drains is. on yeah. you, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So um, with the book, who is the target audience that you want to reach? I mean, is there, is there a way that, uh, I mean, was, was the message to... Um, promote this lifestyle or just explain it look there's good and bad <laughs> just and clear people are too many people trying it you think i don't know I, I think explain it's a good word rather than promote it i think i wanted to dispel some of the misconceptions around it that you don't necessarily have to be a, a beautiful young person on a beach in bali being a programmer for eight billion right. dollars an hour with um, a million instagram followers with Bitcoin tattoos or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, you like you don't have to be young or techie or anything. Like you can you can do this. Um and you just have to and here's how. I mean, I tell the story at the start of the book that uh, when the digital nomad thing was starting to take off some years ago, I went to this conference, um, this like how to be a digital nomad speech and the person was showing slides from their life in Thailand and talking about how amazing it was and and at the end, like, and you can be a digital nomad too. And then everyone in the audience was like, but how? You didn't tell me how. And I wanted to provide that very clear roadmap from going from where you are to being able to work and travel, like fund your travels. So the book is, I guess, for folks who are traveling and want to keep doing so and aren't traveling, but would like to do so a lot. What about uh, things like finances and stuff? Are you still, uh, do you keep like a UK bank account? Do you have a, a Poland bank account? I mean, some countries, they make you open up a, a local account, which is a hassle in itself. Um, yeah. Or is all your payments online and then they go right through, say, New Zealand or the UK or something? Yeah, th there are various different ways to handle this. There are some digital nomads who are very excited about the opportunities to like financial hack and would use words like uh, geographical triage by you know earning here and spending <laughs> yeah. there. And that's not me. I don't have much of a head for that. Uh, personally, I found um, there are services like Revolut or Wise, which are designed for travelers and international people that are designed to handle multiple currencies at the same time and just provide a much easier layer because yeah I, I had much of it run through my until a few years ago i had much of it run through my new zealand bank accounts and that was a pain they kept getting blocked because they thought that i was scamming myself uh, which oh, i wasn't but, <laughs> right yeah. um how about simple things like your phone um do you are you the guy that gets a new SIM card in every country or now with technology, is that even necessary anymore? Or what kind of tech yeah. do you use? So in the EU, if you have a SIM card for one EU country, it'll work for most of them. 
Um, so that's great. Um, that means it's when traveling within Europe, there's not much more you have to do. I had local sims in Albania and Georgia, um, bought them there uh, with certain phones. Um, most iPhones, I believe, uh, you can get what's called an eSIM. So it's just an app and you buy data for specific countries. And also Wi-Fi is everywhere. Like trains and buses have Wi-Fi now. So it's so much easier to stay connected, like no matter where you are. So what are the hot places now? I mean, as soon as in the last five years, at least in America here, you know, Portugal has <laughs> leapt off the map and uh, they found out about it because the prices went ridiculous. Um, you were saying in places like you know, Poznan, you know, that's I would never would have thought of that place. Georgia, I never would have thought of that place. So where do you see like Westerners as the next hot place for for expats? What's what's trending Georgia's pretty trendy because they, they offer, um, for digital nomads who want to be there for a longer period of time, uh, they offer very, very generous uh, tax arrangements. Uh, I know plenty of like Canadians and Americans who've moved there for that reason. Portugal also has similar. Um, Georgia's, just, they're also just really cool places. Albania started to become pretty hot. It wasn't when I was there, um, but I've seen it. Uh, seen that wave really catch on. Uh, it's been amazing to see because when I, I think I saw Albania in its last days of being considered kind of an yeah they're, they're all they're there they're they're there for oh, sure. they, 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 yeah they man. have their own homemade gangsters too like plenty <laughs> plenty of those um but now albania has become becoming huge um there obviously thailand was and is and remains an absolute digital nomad mecca particularly situated around chiang mai that i think will always be um Greece is a lot of countries are trying to position themselves proactively to have digital nomads via digital nomad visas. Greece is working on that. I think new places that are becoming really popular that I don't have much experience of personally are places like Colombia. Apparently, Colombia, Medellin, uh, Pablo Escobar. I was there, yeah. yeah, yeah. I've not been. How, yeah. how was that? It was beautiful. Um, but yeah, you're right. It is uh, getting very popular. Um, you know, and they're trying to shed that image. They run this fine line of, of trying to shed that, you know, Escobar image in the 80s. And it was like the most dangerous city in the world. Um, but it, they can't deny that it is part of their their culture. Yes. But it's much safer now. And uh, yeah, it's and you're talking like a three hour flight from Miami. You know, it, it's yeah, much closer than people think it is. And, it, and it's beautiful. It's in the mountains. So it, it stays kind of cool, which is nice. And they, they, they're only city there with a train system. Uh, you think Bogota would have one, but they don't. So they do have a metro, and it's easier to get around. So, uh, yeah, I thought it was great, and I understand the appeal to it. I mean, it still has its seedy side, and some people go for that seedy side <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. in particular. But, you know, there's, but, yeah, I get it. And it's a good place to learn Spanish, too. A lot yeah. of people go just for that, because I guess the Colombian accent is really kind of like maybe general and good to learn from. So that's good. I would recommend it. I'd love to go. I was I was in Argentina last year for a couple of months, and I don't have that's very a tough good Spanish. Accent. Yeah, that that's was a really tough, tough Spanish my, accent. My my wife's Spanish is much much better than mine. Like she's pretty much fluent, and even she struggled with it. Yeah, with the accent. Buenos, Aires, I can get around a little bit usually, but Buenos Aires was one place that I just <laughs> I was lost. <laughs> they couldn't understand me. I couldn't understand them. It was, it was tough. Uh, what's on your bucket list other than somewhere down there? Where Where do you want to go next? Yeah. Um, so I've been, I've been making a, 
have been making i made recently a trip with my wife to japan actually was on the way to new zealand which makes sense geographically she speaks japanese um it's a language oh that she studied at, uni- at university um very talented with languages i'd love to travel properly through it so i've been to tokyo osaka kyoto i'd love to travel more through the country just get lost in it um and then perhaps a little bit more ambitiously i've, I've traveled basically not at all in africa like i'm no oh. very little about the continent I, i've been to morocco I, people tell me that doesn't count although morocco is yeah. pretty cool but um well north africa nothing. and yeah that's yeah. a different animal than the rest exactly I, I know almost nothing of the continent other than what you read in travel books and in the papers so that would be a new frontier for me for sure oh that's great um so i mean i it's not my personal business but i mean do you think I don't know if, if you're going to start a family, would you want to consider this lifestyle or is this maybe we're going to pick one spot and stay for a while? Yeah, it's definitely been uh, discussed. Um, <laughs> so I was at a digital nomad conference in Bansko, uh, Bulgaria, a couple of months ago. And there's a whole movement of uh, you can be a digital nomad with kids. And it's it's called world schooling when you take them different places. Uh, no, I like more power to you. I don't think I would personally, my wife and I would personally choose that option. I think we'd be a little bit more boring and probably <laughs> travel in the school holidays. But with one parent from New Zealand and the other from Poland, like there's going to be an international element to that without a doubt have you taken her back to new zealand my wife yeah i I have um she i don't know i was less impressed than i wanted her to be i think i need to (laughs) i think i need to do a better job next time of planning of planning the trip (laughs) not a rugby fan okay not a rugby fan no nor am i (laughs) okay good that's why they kicked you out that's it yeah they they get out (laughs) (laughs) um give us a place other than you know krakow and now i'm going to put your polish um tourism hat on uh mm. the places we have to see if people are going to visit where do you tell exp- uh, visitors to see yeah i once the done construction is done uh definitely <laughs> recommend poznan it really is was and will again be very very beautiful um gdansk up in the on the baltic sea in that kind of three city area Gdańsk, uh, Gdynia, and Sopat, really, really beautiful cities, great, like, on the Baltic Sea in the summer, it's amazing, um, where, yeah, Warsaw, definitely underrated, like, can't recommend that enough, where else, like, we don't normally, I, we need to be doing more holidays in Poland, we plan to go to Hell, H-E single L, which is a <laughs> seaside town, and it's actually on the border of Russia, not, Con- not like contiguous Russia, but of Kaliningrad, which is that like little Russian enclave. Um, but apparently it's really beautiful. Like we're planning to go there hopefully fairly soon. Um, otherwise, yeah, Poland's quite uh, east and west Poland are very different. So uh, in East Poland, a place like Lublin, which is where I have family history, has quite a different vibe and feel to it. Also a very different old square, but just quite a different atmosphere than say a West than Poland city like Poznan would have. So if people have serious time here, experiencing that contrast uh, would definitely be worth doing. I'm sure at the moment this interview ends, I'm going to think of a thousand places that I'd wish <laughs> I'd recommended. What do we have to eat when we go to Poland? Well, of course, the obvious is pierogi, but um, which well, is yummy. Yeah. But I, my favorite at the moment, I've been really into this dish. It's called kwadnik. It's like a cold um, yogurt and beetroot soup that pretty much every restaurant seems to have during the summer. And okay. I just 
tried it and it was amazing. And then in the winter, there's the soup called shurek, which is a rye soup. It's very heavy with potato and white sausage. Uh, it's it's amazing. What, uh, not to bring it down too much, but the war in the Ukraine has been going on while you're there. And like you said, it's nearby and, and immigrants have come over, or refugees, I guess it would be. Um, what is the vibe that is happening there? What's the overall uh, vibe you're getting from the progress of it, the lack of progress, and uh, what are we not hearing out here in, in the West? Yeah, I, I think one thing that might, I think I find people I speak to don't understand is, is the sheer number of people who've come to Poland over the last uh, a couple of years. And that's not really a problem. Again, Polish people are very welcoming. Uh, Ukraine and Polish cultures are not that different. The languages are different. I mean, it's, there's Ukrainian, a lot of folks who've moved here come from actually Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine, but they find it much easier. Actually, in my Polish class, um, I had some Ukrainian students, which was completely unfair because they just blitzed me in, in every... Because um, oh. <laughs> the languages are, are very similar. So the integration's been fairly smooth. Um, my wife's aunt is a, is a school teacher, and they put on special classes for the Ukrainian school kids to get them quickly speaking Polish. And you'll often see in a train, there'll be Ukrainian parents and with their kid, and the kid will be speaking Polish, but the parents will be speaking uh, Ukrainian. It's really been quite a remarkable achievement how Poland has like accommodated these people and just facilitated that integration. I'm not saying it's all smiles and rainbows. Like, of course there, anything like that happens, there are going to be tensions. Um, in terms of the war, like I, I can say, you know, the blindingly obvious that there's no love lost between Poland and Russia. Like that's, I mean, I have Russian friends, so, and I, and I know it's very important not to confuse, uh, country and its citizens with its government but yeah that's definitely um ask a polish person in a pub at 2 a.m what's their opinion of russia you're going to learn a lot of new words that's for sure yeah has there been a backlash against those uh russian people in poland like some you know attacks or hate crimes or anything like that not that i've read i mean i'm sure if you googled it there there would be examples but i don't really think i it's not a, a big thing that that i'm aware of um I do know a couple of friends of mine actually are Russians in Poland of mixed backgrounds. And before the war, war they would introduce themselves. It's half Polish, half Russian. And afterwards, they quite understandably um, leaned yeah, into the, the po- I know it's such a complicated and strange moment to be in. Like it's, yeah. Is there positivity that the, it might end soon? Or is that they think, oh, this is going to go on and on? I, I wouldn't want to make a prediction because that would be silly, but, you know, um, there is not a sense that there is going to be a immediate happy ending. I, I'll say that, like, among people that I speak to that <clears throat> just, you know, the cafe people, I'm not talking about any particular experts or anything, but just the general vibe is not that this is going to be over in a hurry. If, if it is, that would be amazing. But, yeah. The- what um, – let's get back to the book for a second – was there a length that you saw it at? I mean, you could keep writing and writing forever. Did you have an editor or did you edit it yourself and just say, you know, I got to cut it here? Are you your own harshest critic? Um, yeah, the book's not long and I, I didn't want it to be particularly verbose. I think the editor I had, my first kind of line of defense is, is Jennifer. She's my co-editor on Intrepid Times, my travel writing publication. And, and she got the first draft and, 
interspersed with the actual like hard advice, step by step, do this, step by step, do that, are anecdotes from my own experience of when things happened. And there are about twice as many anecdotes from my own experience in the first draft. <laughs> and Jennifer's like, you don't need this story. You don't need that story. I'm like, okay, fine. Like, okay. <laughs> well, give us a great anecdote. What, uh, was there something, uh, how about like danger? What's the most dangerous thing that happened to you on the road? Um, yeah, great question. In terms of physical danger, like, I maintain that this was dangerous. My wife thinks I was overreacting, but I was <laughs> out for a walk in Avlabari, this um, old district of Tbilisi, Georgia. Um, it was just when we just moved from this crazy loud concrete jungle place to this much more open, sprawling hills. These houses, you, they look like they're abandoned and collapsing, but there's families living in them. They've been built and rebuilt and rebuilt over the generations. It's just, and there are these ancient uh, Orthodox churches. It's just really cool. And I was just out for a wonder. Um, I think I had my headphones on. I was in my own little world, happy as Larry, just in awe, <laughs> looking at things. There's a, oh no, the tunnel there is flooded. I can't walk through it. I'm going to go around here. And then I heard a dog barking and then another one. And then there were three, in my mind, you know, like 12 feet tall. Wolves. not. Werewolves. Wolves, gigantic nine legs. I know, just dog sized <laughs> dogs. Um, just suddenly just surrounding me because I'm down this little alleyway it's a very residential area and they just came at me and I sprinted away like my heart in my throat and you know if I had I not been so swift they probably probably wouldn't have done anything they're probably just barking but I was <laughs> I, I was very that was one of the most like physical certainly fear I don't know about objective danger but like adrenaline and terror you know it's stray dogs and border checks I always even if I've got all my paperwork in order I'm always nervous at borders that was my next uh, question. Any run-ins with police or border agents or something like that where you thought at some moment it was like, oh, this is bad. I could be going to a cell here. Um, certainly I've had some nervous moments. Like they're traveling through some countries. Like I, I went with friends through some of the Central Asian countries like Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, and they like to show you who's in charge and they like to make you wait. And we'd driven from Tajikistan to Kyrgyzstan over the Pamir Highway. And we finally arrived at the border check after being in the queue. And, you know, the big guy gets out of the car, looks at us, uh, gets out of his booth, looks at us and goes, I'm finishing my TV show and goes back in and watches it. And you don't, you don't, you don't necessarily like, you don't, you think you're going to get a bribe extracted from you, which happened many, many times. You think it's going to be, it's more like how it's not so much, I'm going to be in jail. It's more like, how much is this going to cost me? Exactly. Um, is there a country that you would not go back to? Was there one that you're like, you know, I'm done. <laughs> I've been there, done that, and uh, don't need to come back. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there are countries that I wouldn't go back to under the same circumstances. Like, this unexpected one, I suppose, because it's different. But South Korea, like, I felt that I just could not connect with that country without knowing anyone there like if i were ever to go again i would l want to have a local friend who could show me where to eat where not to eat where to go because i was just wondering the concrete like lost jungle translation. of Seoul. yeah minus 13 degrees celsius i don't know what that is in fahrenheit sorry but very it's very cold. cold it's cold yeah. yeah um and just like not i get where to go yeah but i would love to go back but i just didn't have the knowledge or the context or the connections to get the most of it I had a little of that. At least I was in South Korea with a friend, but I had that experience in Japan. My one time there, I was there for 10 days, and uh, I was alone. 
And if you don't know the language, if you don't, you know, you can get around. It's very clean. It's very safe. And but there were those moments I just found myself wandering the city and uh, no one talking to me. I'm not talking to anybody else and just observing. But you do kind of just wander through. And uh, yeah. yeah, that Bill Murray movie all of a sudden made a lot of sense. Yeah, it can be very isolating, those big cities, especially when, when you're completely alone. Like, yeah, you can feel like the more people around you, the more alone you can feel. It can feel quite acute. I remember in some of the visa runs in Hong Kong, some, although Hong <laughs> Kong you can get by in English, but some of those moments were very, very acute. Yeah, and also some cultures, it's not a very, uh, they don't talk to strangers. They, they would never, the idea of going up to someone in a bar and just go, hey, where are you from? I mean, it's a very American <laughs> thing I found, you know, so fella, where are you from? And oh, really? uh, they they just don't do it. They just they stay to themselves. You know, you don't approach yeah. uh, somebody somebody else. Oh no, no one does it like uh, like Americans do. It. My wife and I were in a cafe here in Poznan the other day, just reading our books, and uh, they must not have read the covers because they came over and asked for directions, and I responded, and she said, "You have very good English." So I was yeah. very, very flat. <laughs> well, you can blend in pretty well over there. They they probably think you're a local. That's true. Yeah, not so much China. No, no, certainly not. <laughs> so um, do you find a lot of expats now or digital nomads? I mean, you, you did your uh, main living in, in writing and still do. Um, but do they want to be or are they mostly like influencers or something like that? Are you, are you seeing a lot more of that? It's like, I'm going to have my YouTube channel over there or something else. Yeah, I, I definitely know a lot of uh, aspiring influencers. I don't think um, many of the ones here are successful enough for that to be their main gig. Um, I think if you were someone like Bali, you know, it would be a different matter. Um, right. There's There are a number of uh, writers here in Poznan. You know, having being a native English speaker and having some facility with the language is such a wonderful way to be able to travel. Like the baseline is, of course, teaching English. But being a copywriter... An English language copywriter in Poland, Poland's economy is booming. There's a lot of demand. Like I know um, a good friend of mine from Australia, another from the States. Uh, the three of us call ourselves the Poznan Writers Association. And we go and basically have beers and pitch about our clients. But that's... Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you say copywriting? I mean, is this uh, advertising? Is this journalism? Or what kind of writing is this? So it depends. It's different for different people. So some people take different projects here and there. But for uh, friends of mine I'm thinking about in Poznan, they have full-time corporate jobs, which is writing. So they're hired by an agency or by a corporation. And whenever there is English language marketing material going out, be it a new page on the website, an email campaign, a brochure, what have you, uh, either they author it or they sign it off because you really do need that native speaker touch to make it resonate with that marketplace. Um, and especially if you have some training and experience, you can really add a lot of value. Oh, in Asia, I saw the great uh, <laughs> missteps when they try to translate something and the signs and something. I had a whole photo series of poorly translated uh, English all over the place, even on like T-shirts and things, you know, just knock off yeah. things when they misspell Chicago when it's got like two eyes in it or something. You know? Just like, oh, you were close. You tried really hard, but, uh, you know, yeah, they misspelled the uh, the toilet sign or something. You know, there's there's always misspellings. That my favorite was in, in South Korea. There was this, you know, young woman dressed to the nines, you know, clearly off to the party or or the club or something. <laughs> and and the, the shirt had clearly been Google translated in it. And it said, Please escort me to the nearest recreational facility. 
<laughs> That's one way of saying party. But yeah, yeah. I mean, party. It's, it's technically correct. You know, you can't fault, <laughs> it is. You can't fault that. Yeah, That's true. Um, also, you said, like, growing up, you know, I did read in the foreword that, you know, your, your mom dying early. Uh, there was or the, was the grandmother. It was not the forward written by B.A. Van Sais. It was uh, he was referring to his his mother. So that wasn't okay. written by me. That was written by a oh, okay. Amer- American writer, travel journalist, B.A. Yeah, that was his, okay. his experience. Yeah. But if um, was there a moment growing up that you had that was uh, that said you know travel is my thing? Was there one big trip that said you know I'm not meant to stay in one place or what opened your mind and you know blew your head off? Yeah, so for me, um, my mum is fortunately uh, alive and well. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I confused uh, no, those two things. No, no, of course. Um, there's a wonderful forward by B.A. He's a very, very talented writer and award-winning photographer. I was really flattered that he agreed to write the forward. And that's his – there is always an origin story for every traveler. And, and that's his – for me, it's, um, you know, first generation in New Zealand um, – I never really truly like I love the country but never really truly felt completely at home there and then I have this would we would travel back and forth to England all the time and I have this sort of core memory I would have been four or five or so of we'd stopped in Singapore for a layover and I remember um just I'd never seen Asia before of course and it looked so different from New Zealand and I remember I was small enough to be able to stand up on the back seat of the taxi and just my jaw dropped like in the cartoon, looking out the window of these buildings and signs and just all of the hustle and bustle and chaos and life. And I thought, I just, I guess I knew that that was, I, I've been chasing that high ever since, I guess. My first trip out of the country was after university. I was 21. And I did the six-week backpacking thing around uh, Europe with the URL pass and the whole deal. And I'd never stayed in, never been out of the country, never been in a hostel before. And, of course, I met so many Aussies and Kiwis um, because – and I realized that they would tend to travel for much longer times. Oh, I'm traveling for a year and stuff, and that just blew me away. I thought six weeks was all the time in the world, you know. But then I realized, oh, they live in such a remote place. When they do leave, you might as well stay longer, you know. Exactly. Did you you get that sense of remoteness growing up in in Kiwi? uh, You know, in New Zealand, it's so far from everything. It's so far. I mean, I feel that more acutely now than I've ever been. Like, I'm trying to get back home soon, but it's like I can either choose between the flights that are outlandishly expensive or the ones that get me there four days after I start, you know, and those days just disappear. So it's like... You know, choose your choose your poison. It's yeah, it's definitely true that when Kiwis travel, they do the do the gap year. They uh, yeah. they go hard. And I remember um, I made friends with when I was the first time I was in Budapest, not when I was living there uh, with my wife, but when I was backpacking through there many years ago. And there are a bunch of Aussies running this sort of tiny, crazy little hostel uh, near the smaller train station, Nugati train station, and they're all concocting various schemes so that they could outstay their tourist visas. They're all working illegally and to stay longer and one of them came out with the bright idea of apparently of boiling his passport and he was sure that this was the strategy if you boil the passport he said in a bowl of water it melts to microchip and they'll never be able to find you mate like, I'm not endorsing the strategy but like sometimes you do anything to make the trip last long yeah well they, they in California here they all work at the ski resorts you know you go up to right. like, these okay. little mountain towns and it's all Aussies and Kiwis on their summer holiday Working, you know, in the opposite, you know, following the snow, the ski bums, and they have quite a time up here. 
I, I've, I have noticed. They seem to have a lot of fun. That's <laughs> yes. what drew me to them. It's sure. like, boy, these guys seem to have a lot of fun. Um, so all these things that you, you've learned and, and about this lifestyle and everything else, uh, where do you see the future happening in terms of work, in terms of borders? And, and, and is this only going to be more common, you think? Yeah, I think so, but not in a straight line. The trajectory is going to go up and there's going to be interruptions. Like COVID was a massive negative for travel freedom, but it resulted in a positive. I'm not necessarily going to say a net positive. I mean, there are so many tragedies associated with that, but it resulted in a positive. I'm not saying it was a positive, but there was a, there was a positive result, which was the normalization of remote work. And then there was, of course, this movement from all these big American corporates saying remote work, like Elon Musk saying, you know, remote work's nonsense. But actually, it's still very much a thing. And it's something maybe it's not going to be 100% of your time. But for X months a year, it's very much normalized, um, much more so than it was. So that was a positive. There are going to be weird interruptions to freedom of movement, for example, Brexit. But the general trajectory is towards more freedom, more opportunities to travel. That's the big picture. If you zoom out, you know, that's so when I think something I have to remind myself is when we live through these blips, these interruptions that feel like forever, there are moments of COVID that felt like you never travel again. That, that is the, that is the exception. That is not the general trend. Well, I forgot to ask you one thing and it's a boring expat question. The taxes. Uh, yeah. I know Americans, we have to pay taxes no matter where we live in the world. We have to pay U.S. taxes, yeah. but that's not the case for, for every other country. How do you, uh, most expats and, and digital nomads handle it, and how do you handle it? So I was at this Bansko Nomad Forum, and the speech before mine, I was speaking about my book, was the tax talk. It was one of the most popular ones there. And he asked how many people here still pay tax in your home country. Most hands shot up. If you are from a country like... Um, the US or uh, even like indeed New Zealand, fairly high tax countries, there are a lot of things you can do as a nomad to reduce your tax bill. I alluded to Georgia earlier. Um, I'm not an expert on that. Um, I have an accountant in Poland who keeps me compliant (laughs) in Poland. And I have an accountant in New Zealand who keeps me compliant in New Zealand. And I just pay what they tell me to pay. Like I'm not the guy who optimizes and tries to be clever like that's i don't have the brains for it plenty of nomads (laughs) do actually in bansko at this nomad fest i was shocked i was asking like why are you a digital nomad i was talking to people many many of them particularly folks from canada from um scandinavia and from germany were in the game their primary reason they were successful entrepreneurs and their primary reason for leaving their home country and being a digital nomad was tax optimization like more power to you like fair enough but yeah that's not my that's not my thing yeah, when you ask somebody, why are you living in Dubai? And then you go, oh, right. <laughs> That's, it's usually, it's usually yeah, oh, taxes or their, uh, their corporations are listed there or something like that. It's a tax haven. But those, exactly. those are all over. But, I mean, uh, more power to them. They're obviously making some money where taxes are <laughs> the, you know, yeah. a bigger issue. And it's very high. You know, Scandinavia, as we know, it's, it's very highly taxed. And, and so is oh, the yeah, UK. Sure. Um, so finally, uh, we should wrap it up now. I know you've got a big Friday night to, to go out <laughs> and enjoy. Um, it's still light out there, I can see through the window. It's very nice. It is, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's the dwindling days of summer, but it's been a lovely September. So and far, this is the, eight days in. But. Yeah, it's always the best month to travel there. I always find I September, right? All the, have yeah, the August I'm, crowds pretty much gone? 
I 100% agree that September is the best month here. Yeah, for sure. Um, August crowds seem to have gone, and it rained all August. Like, it was just soaked. Oof. So we seem to be getting some uh, consolation now. How's the weather? Today it's lovely. It's 29, I think, uh, again, Celsius, sorry. It's like right, but that's 3,000 Fahrenheit or whatever it yeah. is. <laughs> um, I think 90. Uh, it's quite, it's yeah, really it's, pleasant. Okay, lovely. Um, so uh, let's get revert, no, end plugs here. Um, where can people find the book? Is it out on Amazon? Is there a, we can put a link on our site, but is there some place they can go and, or, and also follow you, like in social media? Yep, uh, the book's available on all the big online stores and hopefully in some bookstores uh, as well where good books are sold. Uh, <laughs> you can follow me at uh, Intrepid Times, um, at Intrepid Times, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can also grab the book from there. Uh, intrepidtimes.com slash books has links to on all the, for all the countries. Okay, I never asked you about Lonely Planet. You said you, you write for Lonely Planet? Yeah, I just did a couple of gigs uh, for there. I've got it somewhere back here, the Gourmet Trails Europe book, which is a big, beautiful production. It just happened to just happened to be contacted or was able to make the connection with the person putting it together. And I did the Warsaw chapter and the Tirana Albania chapter, which was a lot of fun. Um, really, it's not like my core business, the sort of guide writing. I'm more into the sort of narrative storytelling travel. But yeah, as a kid traveling, I always, The Lonely Planet was the Bible, right? So it was a right, nice me too. thing to get some, get some pieces in there. And I still have all my old books and I can't seem to part with them, even though exactly. they're all online and they're all, and, boy, those, and I've gotten rid of a number of books over the years of, you know, many moves, but I just, uh, I can't seem to part with those, even though I've, I hear you. it's all on, you know, digital now and everything else and but man, yeah, and I was wondering about the power that they had in terms of yeah, they were, popularizing a place or even a restaurant, you know? Yep, yep, and totally changing a place, too. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how much influence this particular, this one, this Gourmet Trails Europe one has, but I was able to put into it some small um, restaurants in Tirana that I absolutely loved and would eat at when I was there, and... I wonder if people are going to be going there for because of this. I I, I hope so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, finally, what do you think all this um, travel and experiencing all these different cultures? What has it taught you about yourself? What has it taught you about people? And how has it changed you as a person? Great, great question. I I think you don't. No one really realizes that they're from, I mean, maybe it's different because the America is such an assertive country and you have such a strong identity. The hell's that supposed to be? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, no offense. Joke, yeah, yeah I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. Um, <laughs> but like, well, certainly for, for me from New Zealand, I didn't, I kind of thought that the way my perspective growing up and the, the stories that I was told of history and the news that I read, that was normal. And everything that was different was kind of interesting and weird. And But then you lose that sense of this is the default way of seeing the world. You, you realize that you too are just in the crazy soup with all of your baggages and perspectives. And you shed that to some extent. You can't completely, I think. But at least you become more aware of it. And you realize that a diversity of perspectives and a diversity of opinions of the people that you hang out with, that's the most exciting things. And how aware people are of that um 
I also learned that travel doesn't, by default, make you a cool and interesting person. I kind of wish it did. Um, but <laughs> Speak for you yourself. Really ha- yeah, no, it doesn't. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> you can't. You don't just go somewhere and then people are like, oh my god, you're so interesting. Like you yeah, have to. Right. It doesn't. It's not. It's not a magic trick. You have to kind of lose yourself a little bit more, which is something I'm still working on. But it's a <laughs> worthy endeavor, I think. Oh, great. Well, thank you. And once again, the book is called Untethered. It's by Nathan James Thomas. And uh, Nathan, thank you for doing this and spending your early uh, Friday evening with me. Thank you, Mike. really appreciate you joining me uh, early in your morning. This has been a really interesting and stimulating conversation. Oh, thank you. And what's uh, goodbye in uh, Polish? Dovidzenia. Dovis- oh, it's very like Dosvidania. Very, very close, right? Yeah, very close. Both oh, Slavic languages. Say that yeah. again. Say that again. Dovidzenia. Dovidzenia. I, I probably just butchered that right there. But <laughs> thanks, David. I'm not sure I pronounced it perfectly. Either. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> thanks.